Hello and welcome to the NBA Next podcast presented by Track. I am Scott Allen and I'm joined by Keith Smith. We are here to talk about what is next financially in the NBA. Keith, we had a little hiatus there. Welcome back in 2024. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you know, it was good to do a little bit of family time, and I know you were doing a little bit of traveling. I stayed put, but still, it's just a million things going on those weeks, and the kids are out of school, and it's just just madness. Everything's all out of routine. So I am very happy to be settling back in and hopefully getting back into the regular routine. We go from one madness of the holiday to the NBA madness. <laughs> uh, that is. It, in front of us with the NBA trade deadline uh, a month away now. Um, But before we get into any of that, Eric Spolstra had an extension last night, eight years, 120 million puts him one of the top paid coaches in, in the sport, in all of sports. Uh, So what does this mean for Miami moving forward? Yeah, it definitely sets up that he's not going anywhere anytime soon now. So that is really, I think, important for the Heat and for Eric Spolster. He was reportedly in the final year of his contract. And clearly, if he'd become a coaching free agent, you would have had several other teams, probably somewhere in the range of 10 to 15, that would have at least had exploratory conversation, if not more than that to say, hey, what would it take to get you here? I also wonder the length of this. Does this kind of lock us into, hey, you know, maybe you only really coach four or five more years, but then the final years of this, we're going to bump you upstairs and you'll take a front office role, kind of a la what Brad Stevens did, who was also on a a notoriously long contract uh, for a coach. So that, that could be a thing that happens here. But mostly I think this was about the Heat saying, Hey, we don't want this guy working anywhere else. Let's get it done. Let's get him locked up. And and now he is and being paid handsomely to do it. Yeah, it, it's a win for Miami. It's a win for Spolstra. I mean, that, you know, quote unquote, heat culture. He fits it. And, um, you know, the, the heat are in it every year, whether they're, you know, the fifth, sixth seed or they're at the top of the standings. You know, they're always that team to watch out for. And it's good to see that, uh, you know, going from video film cutting and all the way to where he is now, it's it's a great story. So I'm I'm glad that he is getting his due. Uh, We did not get to talk about the OG Ananobi New York Knicks trade. So, and I know it's a few weeks out from it. So instead of going through the specifics of the trade, it's more of, you know, a trade recap. Now that we're three or four weeks from that trade, um, I guess it's only two weeks at this point. Uh, how does it look for the Knicks? How does it look for Toronto uh, with the pieces that were exchanged? Yeah, time's all relevant right now, Scott. It was only a week ago. I <laughs> thought it was Monday, and it was actually a Thursday. So that that kind of gives you a sense of where my head has been yeah, at. Again, here. I cra- crave the routine, and let's get back into it. But yeah, this trade, it, it's worked out fantastic so far for the Knicks. I think they're 5-0 and uh, since the trade went down. OG Ananobi in his minutes is plus 100 and something points. Maybe I think it's 111 points while he's been on the floor, which is just absurdly ridiculous over the course of five games. But he's been everything they wanted him to be. He's a better shooter than R.J. Barrett. He is a better defender than R.J. Barrett. He's a more versatile player than R.J. Barrett. And he's not a guy who 
needs the ball a lot. If you stick him in the corner, that's fine because he excels at that. He, they, they've got Julius Randle, Jalen Brunson. They're going to have the ball quite a bit. So the Knicks lost a, a, some on-ball creation for sure with Barrett. And then we'll talk about the quickly part of it here in a second because that was a big loss. But Ananobi's giving them everything else that they could want, shooting, defense, rebounding. And he also has the added ability when Julius Randle sits, which is only like 10, 15 minutes a night on the uh, most, Oh, Ananobi can play the four. You can slide him up a position and say, all right, you're going to play the four right now uh, while Randall is on the bench. And that's not something you could do with Barrett because he's just not big enough. So that's huge. As far as the manual quickly part goes, major loss, but they believed in Deuce McBride, Miles McBride, as a guy that they felt like, hey, he can really do some stuff. Uh, so much so that right on the heels of the trade, they immediately signed him to a contract extension, which will keep him in New York long term. So now he stepped in, he's playing more minutes. And what I think they've done a really good job of is they're not trying to replace uh, quickly with McBride. It's a little bit more from McBride, a little bit more from Grimes, a little bit more from Hart, a little bit more from DiVincenzo. And that's how you replace Emmanuel quickly. So going great uh, for the Knicks. On the other side with the Raptors, I think they're happy too. Quickly has been very good. Has slotted right in as their starting point guard. Looks like that'll be the role he'll have for the next several years uh, moving forward. And then R.J. Barrett's just kind of doing his thing there in Toronto. So Toronto's side of this was always probably going to be a little harder because Ananobi is just super plug and play where Toronto is going to take a lot of adjustment to, all right, Barrett comes in. That's another on-ball guy when you've already got – Barnes and Siakam and now quickly is going to start Schroeder goes to the bench so it's going to take the Raptors a little bit to get that all sorted but I think both teams need to be walking away from this feeling like wow you know kind of a it's kind of rare but a true win-win trade where both sides should feel really good about it so from a financial side and we're getting close to the trade deadline is New York done or do you foresee them making another move yeah, we're going to see, is it, are they going to make the move now? Or are they going to wait until the summer? Um, they still have Evan Fournier's contract and that is truly just a tradable contract for them because Fournier does not play. So that's $18.8 million this season that they could put into a trade or it would not shock me if they don't find a deal they like, because maybe they're saying, ah, let's save it and see if a true you know, major star comes on the market in June and July. And if that happens, it wouldn't shock me if we see them pick up 48's team option, even though I think everybody, the initial thought will be, why, what is that? What are you doing? $19 million. They're not going to have cap space no matter what, because they're going to resign Ananobi. You've got Brunson, you've got Randall, you've got Josh Hart, uh, you've got DiVincenzo. These guys all make north of $10 million, plus Mitchell Robinson will be back from injury. He makes $14 million. So you're not going to have cap space. So might as well pick up Fournier, then you have him at least as salary matching uh, in a trade if that's the direction they want to go there. So something more is going to come from the Knicks, whether it's in the next month, before we get to the trade deadline or whether it's in the next six months uh, by the time we're in the beginning part of July, that's what we don't know. So from the Toronto side, Siakam has already been rumored with Sacramento and it's not going to end. That's not going to be the last team that a rumor comes with Siakam. So from the Toronto standpoint, 
Um, do you foresee Siakam is going to get moved? Do you think there's other moves that Toronto may do pivoting off of acquiring quickly and Barrett now? Yeah, I think we're closer to seeing uh, Siakam get moved just because I think we're in a spot with the Raptors where I think they're starting to recognize, all right, you know what, we're a half game, or I guess it's a full game now, out of the uh, postseason picture where we're 11th in, in a 10-team postseason race tied with the Hawks. Everybody below them is is basically done, the Hornets, the Wizards, and Pistons. So the question is, all right, do we really want to try to chase down Brooklyn, Chicago, get into the playing tournament as the 9-10? They're six games behind Orlando, so I don't think they're going to make up that kind of difference. But do we want to chase down those teams to be a play-in tournament team? And then in the first round, you're going to get Boston or Milwaukee or somebody like that, and we probably don't have a whole lot of a chance against them. So I think what starts to happen in that situation, if you're Toronto is, all right, well, what are we doing with Siakam long-term? Is he going to leave? Because if he's leaving, there's no reason to, to keep him. You, and if you're not going to re-sign him, then you might as well trade him and get something for him so you don't lose. It doesn't mean you got to take whatever you're offered. You still make a good deal because it could stretch into being a sign-in trade in the summer if that's where it needed to go to. But I think it's pretty clear they're building around Barnes and quickly now. Those are going to be their two guys. Uh, Barrett to a slightly lesser extent, but he's obviously going to be a big part of things there too in Toronto. So I think it's these are these are our building blocks, and we're probably going to be moving on from Siakam. We'll see what happens with a guy like uh, Gary Trent Jr. They've also got some decently sized expiring contracts and Otto Porter Jr. and Thad Young. So so we'll see what it looks like in Toronto, but I don't think they're done. With teams, uh, you know, as we get closer to the trade deadline, I want to focus on the top three teams of the East and top three of the West. I know you're working on a uh, trade deadline primer and who who has what and who may move and and that kind of stuff. Uh, But I just want to focus on the top three uh, today uh, of each East and West. So in the East, you have Boston, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia. Let's start with Boston. What does Boston need to do in order to uh, really solidify outside of what they've already done, uh, maybe from a depth standpoint, or maybe there's a a hole that you feel that they need to fill um, that they may try to target a trade deadline? Yeah, they're looking for a big wing, and that comes direct from Brad Stevens. He said that on the record the other day, so... Yeah, but we will take him at it at his word on that and say, all right, they're looking for a big wing. The challenge is they have very little to offer as far as matching salary and trade. Any significant salaries are attached to a rotation player uh, for the Celtics. So they, they're not, they don't have a Fournier contract that's just kind of sitting there on their bench. They, they are really kind of in a spot where, all right, if you're on the team, you're getting paid pretty good or you're on a minimum deal. That's just kind of where they're sitting right now they do have a trade exception worth about 6.2 million dollars so that is something they do have tradable first round picks the challenge is going to be can they find someone who either is makes somewhere between let's say six and ten million dollars because the other option that the celtics could have is they could put together two three four guys on minimum deals and go get someone who makes about eight nine ten million dollars uh in that range 
so the question becomes, can they find somebody? And then can they sweeten the pot with, hey, we're going to give you a first round pick for that guy or something like that. So we'll see. But they're already sitting about five and a half million over the second apron. That's a lot. So I just don't know that we're going to get in a spot where that Boston is jumping all over the place to make uh, you know, major trades here. I think it's more going to be something on the smaller end. So what about Milwaukee? Last 10 games, they've been 5-5, five and five, so sort of struggling here of, of late. What does Milwaukee need to do to help themselves? Yeah, you can cut and paste everything I said about Boston because <laughs> they're basically in the exact same spot, except they don't have a trade exception, and they don't have a lot of first-round picks that they can trade. So they're just in a, in a weird place right now. Again, super expensive roster. Uh, any significant salaries are attached to key rotation players. Maybe you could see them say, all right, Pat Connaughton, 9.4 million. They could upgrade that spot. Maybe he could be traded. Uh, may- maybe they put in someone like uh, Marjan Bochamp, who's still on his rookie scale deal, if that's the direction they wanted to go in or something along those lines. But that's that's kind of where we're at. The, the Bucks are, you know, they're committed to almost 100 million uh, next season just between Giannis and Damian Lillard and then you've got Middleton and Brooke Lopez and Bobby Portis we're all making good money so those guys are all you know they're they're in the same spot as the Celtics where it's at least for one more year they're going to be very very expensive and then it's going to be you know how do we fill this out so I'm sure they'll look. Uh, they're always active around the trade deadline looking for guys but again it's going to be something smaller versus probably any kind of major blockbuster. Philadelphia made their trade in November 1st, um, but is there something that they uh, are missing they need to focus on uh, down the stretch here? Yeah, I think they'd just like to add, you know, maybe a little bit more scoring punch, especially off the bench, if they can, because Knights, when Embiid and Maxi either don't have it going, or uh, I would say either one, but it's really more Embiid is out it then falls to Tobias Harris and he's just not a consistent score, but where they're in a very different place than the other two teams is in the short term this season, they have a whole bunch of tradable salary because they took on a bunch of contracts in the deal uh, that sent James Harden to the Clippers. So they've got guys like Marcus Morris and uh, Robert Covington, even if they wanted to Nick Batum, could be put into a trade package. You've even got uh, Furkan Korkmaz, Daniel House. Those guys are almost $10 million combined in matching salary. you got Jaden Springer, who's on a rookie deal that you could put into a trade if that's the direction they really wanted to go. Longer term, we know they're well-positioned to have a ton of cap space. They, they really could have you know somewhere in the range of I've been using 40-ish as kind of my my loose guideline for, for Philadelphia, but there are worlds where they could get up to 50 or 60 million in cap space. So a lot of it's going to come down to, do you do a little bit of pre-agency where you're going to bring somebody in and you're going to get somebody on a um, contract that really fits and, and you feel really, really good about uh, having in there or uh, long-term and eating in the next summer's cap space or do you just hold and say, you know what, we're doing all right with what we have. We don't need to make a big move right now. We prefer letting kind of that, all that stuff roll. Guys, contracts will expire and we'll move forward with our cap space in the summer of 2024. So we're going to see that they can really go either way and neither one's necessarily a bad choice. 
I wouldn't be surprised if they act early. Daryl Morey kind of hinted at that of potentially being an option in a recent interview of just, yeah, yeah, we got to see what's out there. It might be best to make a move right now. The question is going to be who comes on the market that really makes sense for them because guys like Zach Levine and Pascal Siakam, I don't think that's where they want to necessarily spend you know, all their uh, money moving forward. Flipping to the West, Minnesota Timberwolves are number one. They have quite a bit of money locked up into the future. So my guess is, tell me if I'm wrong, Mike Connolly is probably the one that gets moved off this roster as an upgrade uh, at this trade deadline. Uh, I don't think so. I, I no? think he okay. stays just because they need him. If they, they move him, they don't have a point guard. So I, I don't think they're going to move on from him. I think if anything, you'll see them, a couple of the guys they took chances on this summer, guys like Troy Brown Jr. and Shake Milton, that's a combined $9 million in salary. Throw one of their younger, lesser guys into that. You're up over $10 million, and that's how you can go get somebody. Conley's just hugely important to them. Now, they do have $165.6 million locked up in five players for next season. And a couple people have said, like, wait, how is it so much money? Well, you have Rudy Gobert. So he's still on his contract. His deal goes to $43.8 million next year. That's year four of his five-year contract. They extended Nas Reed uh, last offseason. He's going to be at almost $14 million. Then you've got three guys who have extensions kicking in that are huge extensions. And that, that 165.6 could end up being even higher if Carl Anthony Towns or Anthony Edwards makes all NBA and they qualify to jump to the 30% and 35% max tiers for either one of them. So Towns, 49.7 million. Edwards, 35.5 million. That's right now. Again, those could go up. And then you have uh, Jaden McDaniels, who's going from 3.9 million to 22.6 million next year. Now, we talked about Conley. You're right. If they're going to make any kind of major, massive move, it would probably have to be Conley because all those guys who are extension, they're sitting out there. They're not going to be guys they're going to move. They're probably not moving Gobert. I just don't think they're going to make that kind of major swing, especially not where it's, hey, let's add somebody else who's at 25 to $30 million onto this payroll and be approaching $200 million for six players. I think what's more likely is, they make a smaller move, again, Brown, Milton, maybe uh, Wendell Moore Jr., a former first-round pick who hasn't really played very much in his first couple of years. Those are the guys you could maybe put together, go get yourself a nice rotation piece. And then when Conley's contract expires, if he still wants to play, because this is year uh, 17 for Mike Conley. If Mike Conley says, I'm done, then the Wolves got to got to solve for the point guard spot. Otherwise, I think they could look at it and say, hey, we want to bring you back, but we're not bringing you back at $24 million. It, it'll be more like $10 million, but we might do three years at $10 million a piece or something like that. So Conley still gets paid, but he's not sitting there on any one giant number pushing their tax bill up. Because this is a franchise, I keep reminding people, just sold, but Alex Rodriguez and Mark Laurie, the the bid they were leading to do the final portion, like the final payment to Glenn Taylor, they had to recruit a third uh, party in there and had to get the third owner in there that's going to take a stake in the team just to get that over the finish line with Glenn Taylor. So that tells me they're probably not looking at having 
Warriors, Clippers, Celtics like tax bills anytime soon. <laughs> Oklahoma City Thunder are f- second right now. Uh, they are deep. They are young. What do they need to do as we approach this deadline? Yeah, I, I still think they need to add one more guy. Just like one more guy. Ideally, someone with some size that's like a 4-5 or five that could maybe start if they needed to put a bigger player alongside Chet Holmgren in the starting group or somebody who could come off the bench and back him up or play with him uh, in, in bench lineups and those kind of things. So that would be where I'd be looking to go. Um, if I was the thunder, they obviously have the ability to go do it. They have Davis Bertans at 17 million. They've got a bunch of other contracts that are very tradable guys like, uh, Vasily Misic at 7.7 million, Alexi Pokashevsky at 5 million. Uh, you've got Trey Mann at 3.2 million. They can get well over 20 million in matching salary, almost really to 30 million in matching salary with without touching a, ro- a real rotation player uh, in, in that mix, which is huge. And then we all know they've got a million draft picks. So if it's a team's like, well, you know, those players aren't moving us. Well, what do you think about two, three, four first round picks? Is that, you know, do anything for you? And then all of a sudden you might see uh, the trade wheels really start to move a little bit. But all that said, they may look at it and say, yeah, we're good. We're good to just kind of keep moving with what we got. But then that leads me to then this summer is probably the year when it's, hey, let's make the big deal this summer. And sometimes those big trades are much easier to make in the off season because I don't think we're going to see the Thunder going to a spot where it's, all right, we're going to have a ton of cap space and we're going to do that because I think they're probably going to let uh, you know a couple contracts expire. But for the most part, they're going to be locked in. But the last thing I'll say with them, keep an eye on just timing-wise. We're getting down to it's probably going to be this year or maybe next year that they make their big, big move because we're running out of time with these guys on the rookie scale contracts where they're going to be incredibly good values. Like Jalen Williams at 4.5 million this year, 4.8 million next year. That's that's vastly underpaid. Chet Holmgren already 10.4 million, 10.9 million underpaid. You know, those guys are going to get fairly paid here within the next couple of years on extensions. So that's going to be where you've got them. You've got Shea Gilgis Alexander, and that's going to be where the Thunder are probably going to rebalance a little bit into our, we're there. It's time to go add whoever those pieces are that push us over the top while we still can before we get super expensive. Denver Nuggets are third. What does the defending champions need to do to help them down the long stretch? Yeah, they are uh, hard capped at the second apron. Uh, so they, they're about 4.7 million under it. So they've got enough wiggle room. They're challenged, much like Boston, Milwaukee, other teams. They don't have any salary that's just kind of sitting there that's not attached to a, a, ro- a key rotation guy. Their guys are Jokic, 47.6, Jamal Murray, 33.8, Michael Porter Jr., 33.4. Aaron Gordon, 22.3, and Contavious Caldwell Pope, 14.7. That's their only double-digit salaries. Obviously, you know, five starters. For my money, the best starting five in the game when they're all healthy and going. So what you're going to look at for the Nuggets is they're going to do anything. It's going to be a smaller move, uh, probably using the same tactic I said of pile together a few contracts to go to somebody who makes eight, nine million. 
Uh, maybe Reggie Jackson, his contract was set up to be very tradable where he got the player option for next year, but he did waive his no trade clause. So maybe they could do that, but he's been a key reserve for them. And given Jamal Murray's health issues over the years, that's probably something they want to hang on to. So I think it's probably going to be a pretty quiet deadline for the Nuggets. Because I think the Nuggets, for the most part, are, eh, we know what it takes now. We just got to get through the regular season. Let's get to April fully healthy, and then we'll be ready to go and really kind of launch into what we're going to be. And in the meantime, all of our young guys have gotten all this great experience uh, throughout the course of the regular season. We'll know which ones are playoff ready. All right, we will be more uh, talking more trade deadline as we get closer. You'll have your trade deadline primer and buyers and sellers, all that good stuff. Um, let's dive into some minor transactions and then we'll get out of here. Uh, 10-day contracts and two-way contracts, you did a piece for us on those. So I just want to recap, what does a 10-day contract mean? What are its limitations, its benefits uh, now that players can sign because we had a couple already uh, signed here yesterday. Sure. Unlike a lot of things in the NBA, this one is aptly named and fairly <laughs> named. It's, it is literally a 10 day contract. So a player signs with the team for 10 days. The idea behind a 10 day deal was you have an open roster spot. Maybe somebody sprains an ankle and is going to be out for a week or two. You call somebody up. It used to be from the old, uh, the old CBA back when that existed. And now it's mostly guys get called up from the G League. Occasionally it'll be a veteran who's trying to play their way back into the league. So you might see someone like Austin Rivers or John Wall kind of come in and join a team on a 10-day. And that's a way to show, hey, I still got it. I can play and it's worth signing me for the rest of the season. So we'll see guys like that come in. DeMarcus Cousins is doing a stint in Taiwan. Uh, but it's only supposed to be a short one. Uh, if he looks pretty good, he could be a guy that a team might say, hey, let's go. But we've already seen a couple guys um, that I had on the list over um, on Spot Track that have already gotten call-ups. Uh, we, we already saw uh, Jason Preston, uh, who was one of the guys I had on there. He'd been playing for the Memphis Hustle. He got moved up to a, um, a uh, two-way contract there uh, with the um, – uh, Utah Jazz in recent days. We've seen um, Darius Baisley's name's been mentioned. Jalen Wells already played on a two-way contract. So I think we're in a spot where I, I put together a list of some of the guys that guys that jumped out to me and I thought looked pretty good uh, this season in the G League. Some uh, people who executives mentioned as guys to keep an eye on when everybody was here in Orlando for the G League showcase. So that's that's where a lot of these names came from. Some of them will be very familiar to people. A handful of guys, I think people would be like, eh, I don't really know much about this guy, but I think when you look at it, it's like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. You know, why this guy could be on the list. So so 10 days, uh, how a 10-day works is they get 10 days of pay. It's the greater of 10 days or three games. So if for some reason a team only plays two games in 10 days and then they play the third game on day 12, it turns into a 12-day contract. But it's the greater of those two. And a player can sign two true 10 days with a team, uh, which would be meaning these are not hardship 10 days where – Teams are so injured they're signing guys or COVID 10 days. Let's all knock on wood and hope those don't come back ever again. Um, but if we're in a spot where it's a regular 10-day, player, player and team can sign one uh, for 
10 days. They can sign a second for another 10 days. Then after that, the team has to decide either we're signing the player for the rest of the season or we're going to move on uh, from them and, and look at somebody else. Some teams use this as a way to turn the bottom of the roster. They're kind of cycling guys in and out on 10 days and seeing if somebody pops. Other teams are truly filling a need uh, for an interim period of time. We, we need a point guard. We need a center. We need whatever uh, there. So th- those are the things that, that we'll be keeping an eye on. But there's a lot of open roster spots around the league. And some teams are going to sit on those through the trade deadline just to make it a little easier. Um, but we're going to start seeing 10-day call-ups happen quite more often. We've already had, had uh, uh, two uh, in the last little bit here, Juan Toscano-Anderson got one, and Hamadou Diallo got the other one. Uh, Toscano-Anderson went to the Kings, and Diallo went to the Wizards. So they're their first two real 10-day call-ups, and then we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. Do teams strategize when they want to sign a guy to a 10-day contract so that it maximizes the number of games that they may have, or if it's a West Coast, East Coast swing, depending on where the team resides? Is there any kind of strategy involved, or... Do they just sign them when they need them? Yeah, it's a great question. And in, in there is, I think um, what we see happen with this is um, generally teams, it, it, and this is general, uh, doesn't always work this way, but they'll wait to sign a guy until it's a game day. So then that way you're starting the clock right on a game day. So you're going to really, truly, hopefully maximize uh, what it is for, for that player. Sometimes on a 10 day, you may get four five games even if they're playing kind of every other day you may get a whole bunch of usage out of a guy on a 10-day deal the other thing though every once in a while and i think this might have been potentially the case with like Hamadou diallo the wizard signed him yesterday even though they weren't playing a game and that could have been another team was poking around and maybe had some interest in in bringing him in and bringing him on to to their roster so that becomes a a thing to keep an eye on there of um or, you know, where, where do we go with this? But yeah, it, it, it is interesting how some of the teams do the 10 day process. And then generally you might even see every once in a while, they'll sign a guy and then it's like, um, oh, and the 10 days going to, we're only going to get four days out of it. Then the rest is over the all-star break uh, here in a month or so. And you'll see them, all right, we'll just delay and we'll wait and sign a guy later. Those sort of things happen too. So two way contracts. Um, I know there's specific rules with those. But the, there's a difference between 10-day where they can sign 10 days all throughout the rest of the season. Two-way contracts, there's a last day that two-way contracts can be signed. Is that correct? Yeah, March 10th is the deadline to, to do a two-way contract. So what happens in that case is um, you'll see teams, they'll still cycle guys in and out of two ways. We saw a whole bunch of guys get waived. We're going to get into why that was over the, the, this past weekend. Um, and part of that was just guarantee dates, but we've seen some teams even since then shuffle a couple guys and they'll do that. And that's, that's where with the two ways, what you tend to see a little later uh, in the year is we really like this guy and we'd like to have his rights to continue working with him, whether that be into summer league or in the next season, sometimes even. So what teams will do is they're, they're good. They'll, they'll make two way changes towards the end of the year that March 10th roughly aligns with the the end of the G League season. So 
because the idea is G League season's over. What do you really need a guy on a two-way for? And two-way players, we're back to now fully. Uh, I think this is the second or maybe the third third playoffs. Two-way players are not eligible for the playoffs. We had a couple years where two-way guys were eligible just because we had all the COVID stuff going on and all that. But we're back to two-way players are not eligible to play in the postseason. So we've got about two more months of two-way maneuvering to, that'll happen with teams. And sometimes that's even filled out of a necessity of, man, we're down three point guards right now. We really need somebody. They may bring a player in on a uh, on a um, situation where it's bring them in via two-way. And then you get them, they come in, they fill, in, fill a need. And then sometimes teams move them and then they, they rebalance after. Yeah, maybe it's recency bias, but I feel the two-way contract of wave a two-way, add a two-way has been increased this year. I'd have to go back and double-check, but and like I said, maybe it's recency bias. But again, is there a strategy for which players teams decide to have a two-way, why to get rid of a two-way versus adding a new one or leaving a spot open? I think you're right on that as far as the movement. I think teams are they've realized now we've had two ways for, I believe this is year seven or eight of two ways. Now teams know how to kind of use that uh, positioning and they have the third one uh, now, which was not something they had previously. So that's become a thing as well. But I think there's two things that happen is one, sometimes it can be, yeah, an injury four star hand here. And we've got to go get somebody who plays position X that happened with the New York Knicks. Uh, They made a two way move where it was, we got to get a center in here because we're down to at that point they had Isaiah Hartenstein and nobody, uh, so they had signed um, Dimitros Kapinsev, who was a guy who had played in their G League system, and it was bring him up. Then when Jericho Sims got healthy, they made the trade with Toronto. They got Precious Achua who's come in and is now really functioning as their backup five. The Knicks said, "All right, we don't need you on a two way anymore." They moved him out, signed another player, and he's still with the Knicks organization in the G League. The other thing that happens is, and this is the one that kind of the dark side of this that stinks. If a two-way guy gets hurt, there's very little reason to keep him on the roster. Uh, Your free agent rights are not so good for a two-way player that it's worth kind of keeping him on roster. Whereas like John Morant is out for the season now. The Grizzlies would never waive him because they clearly want him back next season. Uh, That even sometimes happens with guys on expiring contracts where it's, they're injured, but their bird rights are so valuable. We want to keep them two-way players. It's, that's not really how it works. So often we'll see a two-way guy gets injured. And then what ends up happening is they get cut and waved and the team moves on to refill uh, that two-way spot with another player. So those are kind of the strategies around it there a little bit. I've had people ask me like, do they take in consideration at all what the, the actual G league team needs? The answer is not too much because the G League team will go sign somebody or claim somebody out of the player pool if they really need a center or a point guard or something like that. They'll go find that player. But yeah, it's a it's not too much that we're seeing a two-way contract be dictated by what the G League team needs. We track them as a zero cap hit on spotrack.com, but how do the two-way players actually get paid? Yeah, effectively how it works is they get a per game um, salary. They get paid at a uh, rate. Generally, they get a guaranteed amount. 
uh, that is locked in a lot of times at 75,000 or so, uh, maybe more for this season for some of the guys. But then what ends up happening is they get, they get a prorated per game amount for every day they spend every game they're up for, for the NBA. Uh, even if they don't play, if they're up, they're going to get a little bit more money. And it works out to, if a guy maximizes his two way games, uh, that they can be active for, which is about 50. Uh, what ends up happening is a lot of times we'll see that player will get uh, the, their contract total between the G League pay and NBA play will end up being pretty close to a minimum contract is where that lands out. And then uh, what we just saw uh, pass on Sunday was the contract guarantee guidelines. So anybody who signed to a two-way contract now, their contract's fully guaranteed for the rest of the year. Um, even, even if you pick them up tomorrow, keep them for a month and then wave the guy, that player is going to get a full rest of the season guarantee, even on a two-way deal. All right. Anything else we need to know? Uh, media dates for the NBA, um, any players outside of Siakam that you're hearing that might get moved, anything we should know before we close shop here? Yeah, I mean, the Levine stuff is still out there, so we're still kind of keeping an eye on that a little bit. We're, we're still looking at the um, uh, position where, you know, let's see who else emerges. Uh, there's a thought of, you know, guys will pick up. We're really getting into January 15th is the date that every, basically everybody who signed over the offseason can be traded. So what's going to happen there on January 15th is did anybody who can be traded is eligible now. Uh, for the most part, you still have a handful of guys with trade restrictions that can't go anywhere, whether it be because of when they signed an extension or the type of contract they signed or the offer sheets were matched, all sorts of stuff like that. But by the time we get to the 15th, we're pretty much there. If you could be traded by the trade deadline, you're, you're eligible on the 15th. So that's kind of the last domino to fall to truly open trade season. But we're a month out. It's generally anywhere from two to four weeks out. Uh, things start picking up. So you're going to start to hear rumors and the like and all that stuff bubbling here a little bit more over the next coming weeks. But it's usually within that two-week window of the deadline. I, I know he's a football guy, but as Andrew Brandt loves to say on Twitter, deadline spur action, that's exactly what it is. It's some teams wait you know, until we're two weeks out, a week out, a, a same day. Then it becomes, all right, this is our last chance. So let's do that. And that's also, right now, it's every player – I need two, three, four first-round picks for every single player that's that's even remotely available. So what happens in that situation is teams are like, nope, not doing it, not giving you four first-round picks for this guy. Or a guy like Tyus Jones of the Wizards is known to be available, but it sounds like the Wizards are, and eh, we need a couple first-round picks. Teams aren't going to give that. So what happens is they come down a little bit, other teams come up a little bit in what they're offering, and that's when deals start getting done. All right, as I've alluded to, you have a lot of pieces coming, buyers and sellers, trade deadline, primer. What else can we expect from you that you are working on? Yeah, I mean, you're 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 on it there. We, we've got the uh, primer. That'll be out later this week. We had some weather delays. Unfortunately, both of us have uh, been living through this crazy winter storm. And hopefully anybody who's listening made it through it okay. And, and you're all safe and minimal damage, if any uh, damage. But uh, that'll come out later this week, the trade deadline primer. That's just kind of a quick glance look where you can look and see, all right, how far over the tax are they? Are they under the cap? There's a couple who are under the cap. 
Uh, what do they have to work with for draft picks? What about exceptions? It's just a quick guide to look at with that. And then, yeah, we'll have East buyers and sellers uh, that'll come out West buyers and sellers. Uh, that'll come out on the heels of that, that of the Eastern conference. Uh, and we'll, we'll just get into it. And then hopefully uh, fingers crossed, there'll be a whole bunch of trade analysis uh, coming out this year. We're going to, we're going to break down every trade, uh, no matter how big or small it is. Some of them might be, a few paragraphs long because it takes that little to explain and other ones may be, you know, bigger, more expansive uh, explanations with that, but it's going to be fun to get all into this. There is a sense that this could be a really busy trade deadline because there's a lot of teams who feel like they're in contention this year. And anytime you have that and the addition of there's a few truly horrible teams, Mark Stein noted, we've got four teams this year that are pushed. If things continue that will have a, a negative 10 points or more uh, scoring margin against them. Uh, that'll be the first time that's ever happened in the league. The most we've ever had before is one in a single season. So uh, there are some truly horrific teams that have players to trade and there's a whole bunch of buyers. So that should make for an active and fun trade deadline. All right. If you're looking to follow Keith Smith at Keith Smith NBA, Keith, we will talk next week. Thanks for everything for Keith Smith. I am Scott Allen. Thanks for listening to the NBA Next Podcast.